In a few minutes, Tom will be bringing the word of God to us. But before then, we're going to read the passage in the Bible that he'll be preaching from. Uh, you can find it on page 1143 of the Church Bibles. And you're encouraged to, to follow it there. We're uh, working through Romans. We're in chapter 14. And we're going to start reading at verse 13. And reading through to Romans 15, chapter 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block on herit or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Ian, thank you very much for reading. Please keep your Bibles open there, Romans 14 and 15. I hope every week is an opportunity for us to chat with one another about what we've heard from God's Word, to think through how we can apply it Uh, to ourselves and one another. I think particularly this week, it would be great uh, to chat over uh, tea and coffee afterwards and help one another think through uh, how this might apply. That's not because I don't try to apply it in the sermon, but I do think particularly this week uh, that would be useful. Uh, Let me begin, though, in prayer. Some words from John 17 in Jesus' prayer. The glory that you've given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father God, we do thank you for your love for your son and thank you for your love for your people. We pray that you would grant us understanding now as we look again at this letter to the Romans. Please, would we pursue a right unity in Christ? And we ask it in his name and all for your glory. Amen. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. So sang Meatloaf back in 1993. I wonder if you're familiar with the song. People have debated what exactly Meatloaf wouldn't do for love. Uh, One thing I doubt he had in mind was Romans 14 and 15. Uh, But really, it is Paul's appeal to the church in Rome. He doesn't want there to be any right we cling on to that we're not willing to give up for love of our brother or sister in Christ. And there's a real danger. The Christians in Rome might think, I would do anything for love, but I won't give up meat. Or I won't stop drinking wine. If we were here last week, we'll remember Paul's theme he introduces at the beginning of chapter 14, 14 verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcoming is the issue at stake. Under Emperor Claudius, all the Jews had been thrown out of Rome, but now the edict has been revoked. Uh, Jews are coming back to Rome. Some are getting converted. How will the church welcome them? And will the Christians from a Gentile background who know they're free to eat pork and drink wine, they don't need to keep a religious calendar, will they insist on their rights? Or will they lovingly give them up for their weaker brothers and sisters? Last week we saw how it's the Lord's job to judge, not ours. We live to the Lord. He's the one 
He will make the weak stand. And I don't know about you, but but last week I found myself thinking, what rights would I most struggle to give up for the weaker believer? If we were to sing Meatloaf's song, what would that be for us? I would do anything for love, but I, I won't do that. How much do we really value fellow Christians, especially new believers? Do we love them more than a prawn cocktail? Do we value a member of our church more than a glass of champagne? Is their eternal well-being more important to us than shopping on a Sunday? It feels very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. In verses 22 and 23 there, he says this, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Uh, The difference here in Romans is it's what he's calling on the Christians in Rome to do. And it's more about keeping people Christians. Uh, Will they, the, the strong in the church in Rome, will they become weak to keep the weak trusting in Jesus? And again, it's it's living out the gospel. You see, how is our vertical reconciliation with God going to play out horizontally with one another? Well, firstly, verses 13 to 23 of chapter 14, you'll see it on on the handout. In love, limit your liberty and don't destroy. In love, limit your liberty. Verse 13 again. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Uh, Judging one another was the problem Paul outlines in the first half of the chapter. Just look back to verse 3, up there on the page. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And it's still the issue in our passage today, but, but now Paul focuses more on just the strong. Verse 15 For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. There's this danger of division. But division over what exactly? As we try and think through what this means for us today, we need to be really careful in unpacking what Paul means about uh, by opinions. We, We need to know which disagreements to make a fuss over, which ones to overlook in love. So what is an opinion? Well, we've already seen, haven't we? Food and drink and and special days are in view. So firstly, these opinions are real theological differences informed from God's word. And they're differences where there is a right and a wrong view. So verse 14, I know... And I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Uh, Paul points us back to Jesus declaring all foods clean. It's, it's not an ambiguous issue. So in the first instance, Paul is not talking about mere personal preferences or just taste in church. Someone prefers blue for the church carpet, someone prefers red. Well, in that case, there's no strong or weak, is there? Now, these are opinions where the Bible has something decisive to say on the issue. 
It's not about whether to wear yellow socks on a Tuesday or not. But if someone, for theological reasons, thinks you should dress smartly on a Sunday, then we're getting a bit closer, aren't we? We're free to wear whatever is comfortable and modest and decent. But if I'm chatting with someone over a coffee afterwards and they think for biblical reasons we should dress smart for church on a Sunday, well, I don't want to make them stumble. Now, the style of music we sing on a Sunday just might be a preference issue, might just be what we like. But if someone thinks the Bible says we should only sing psalms, then it's beginning to get a little closer to Romans 14 and 15, isn't it? So, so issues where, where the Bible has something to say, where there is a right and a wrong. But, but secondly, these opinions are not gospel issues. They're not about sin or salvation. Paul's been articulating the gospel at length in this letter. He's not saying now we can just disagree over whether Jesus died and rose again. We mustn't make the mistake of thinking this passage rules out correcting people who are wrong over gospel truths. The current debates in the Church of England over sexuality and marriage, they're not things we can just agree to disagree over. Romans 14 and 50 is unity at great personal cost. It is not unity at all costs. Also, if someone insists on an opinion, they say, for example, you can't be a real Christian and eat meat, then it's stopped being an opinion, hasn't it? They've made it a gospel issue, something you have to do to be saved. If someone says you need a particular experience to be a genuine Christian, again, it's not what Paul's talking about here, is it? In places like Colossians, he's very clear in warning against such teaching. We don't need anything above and beyond faith in Jesus. So in short, just in case you're drifting off, an opinion is a biblically informed issue over which Christians can legitimately disagree. But why then is this such a serious issue? What is at stake? Well, according to Paul, salvation. Just listen to the language Paul uses, verse 15 again. Uh, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Or verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This uh, disagreement, this division, it's a, a stumbling block. It's a hindrance. And you see, it results in someone being destroyed, literally in tearing down God's work. Verse 23, someone is is condemned if he eats. This is about whether someone continues to trust in Jesus or they fall away. Now, Now, we know no true believer can fall away. Paul has said as much in Romans 8. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Or as Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But the way Christians are kept, humanly speaking, is in part by us not causing one another to stumble. I think it helps just to reflect on how scandalous eating pork or shellfish would have been for a Jew. For your whole life, you've known eating these things is wrong. It is sinful. It is simply forbidden. And now if you become a Christian, all of a sudden, it's okay. It would still feel so wrong. That had a lifetime of living one way, of feeling certain foods were just off limits, unclean. And just imagine suddenly you were told a certain sin was acceptable to God. Uh, kind of, it's okay to steal. I'm not saying this is an illustration, but just imagine that it's suddenly okay to steal. It's not like you, you flick a switch and somehow it just feels all right. And for the first time ever, I recently stayed at an all-inclusive hotel. And even though I, I knew it was okay just to help myself to, to food and drink from the restaurant, there was still a little part of me that felt like I was doing something wrong. I don't know if you're like me in that regard. Now, if you, if you times that by a thousand, you're beginning to get close to what a Christian from a Jewish background might feel. They're doing something they feel is unclean. Uh, we wouldn't lick a child's potty, but a, a bacon sandwich, well, it, it might turn their stomach in the same way. Uh, so the church barbecue comes around, that the pork ribs are sizzling away, and Jacob, the Jewish background believer, is offered some. He sees everyone else uh, eating them. Uh, Jerry, the Gentile background believer, tells him how good they taste. Now, now Jacob, he feels they're wrong. It's not honoring to God. He doesn't really want to, but there's a bit of pressure. Everyone else is doing it, and he gives in. Now, the problem is, for him, that is sin. Even though there is nothing wrong with pork ribs, Paul is clear about that. For Jacob, eating them is wrong. And for Jerry, well, he is making his brother Jacob stumble. A clean food can become unclean. Something not sinful can become sinful depending on someone's conscience. And so if Jacob gives in in this one area, well, he's kind of overridden his God-given conscience. He's more likely to give in in other areas. And pretty soon he may well end up throwing in the towel. So the good thing in verse 16, whether that's gospel freedoms or, or even the gospel itself, it's now spoken of as evil. It's a disaster. Here in Tunbridge Wells, we don't have a huge Jewish population. We don't have these kind of divisions. But it's made me think, well, what does this look like for us today? A generation or two ago, it might have been about the length of a woman's hair or playing cards on a Sunday. I think it is somewhat harder for us to apply today. You see, the weak are more restrictive, not less. There's more they won't do. We mustn't apply it the other way round. Paul's not asking people to do what they think is wrong, but not to do what they know they are free to do. And so it made me think, what, what kind of background are people likely to get converted out of today where we might have similar problems? 
For most folk today, they're going to be converted out of the kind of lifestyle we saw back in chapter 13, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's not a legalistic, restrictive culture we live in, but a morally permissive one, but not totally. We pray, I hope, for folk from Muslim backgrounds to come to know Jesus and find life in him. If they, they join St. John's, they get converted, they come over for a meal. I hope we make sure our wine rack is out of sight. Also, we, we might want to welcome, we might need to welcome someone from an environmentalist background. Uh, what happens if an eco-warrior comes to Christ? Uh, we know Christians are free not to recycle. There might be good arguments too, but, but we have that liberty not to. We, we can drive a diesel car and still be a disciple of Jesus. But if Greta Thunberg became a Christian and starts coming to St. John's, we might want to make sure we're carbon neutral and so on. Or in the States, if a Democrat joins a church in the USA in a Republican area, they mustn't be made to feel they have to be Republican to be a Christian. We must never do something to make another Christian go against their biblically informed conscience in an increasingly polarized and intolerant world the church will be marked out by true unity and true tolerance. It could be that some here feel buying goods from China isn't honouring to God. It's not consistent with truths in God's word. Now, we are free to, but would we be willing to give up that right so as not to cause others to stumble? As I said, it's not easy to apply, but we do need to think and pray it through. Do you keep chatting with one another afterwards? And at one level, church is not meant to be comfortable. We're constantly trying to put other people before ourselves. And we do it because of how precious, how valuable a believer is. You see, what is crystal clear is how much a new believer is worth. Far, far more than food or drink. Instead of tearing down by insisting on our rights. We should be building up, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And this means, verse 22, keeping your faith between yourself and God. It's got nothing to do with not proclaiming Christ. We're still to tell non-Christians the gospel. It's also not about keeping quiet when people are saying you can unrepentantly sin and still be accepted by God. No, it's saying keep your convictions about what you are free to eat between you and God. Now, don't ram it down the weaker believer's throat. Don't make a big deal of your freedoms. A strong church may very well end up looking like a weak, tender conscience church out of love. It'll be a church aware of how serious it is to make someone go against their conscience. It's what the end of verse 23 means. The, the essence of sin is unbelief. Every time we sin, we refuse to believe God's word. And everything we do is done either for God with faith in him or for ourselves. There's no middle ground. 
the Christian life isn't superficial obedience to a set of rules, but genuine, living, wholehearted trust in God. It also shows why someone who's not trusting in Jesus cannot please God. Everything they do proceeds from unbelief. It's sin. If you are not yet a Christian, you cannot do anything for God. You first must receive forgiveness and life from God. And wonderfully, Jesus turns no one away who comes to him in humble admission of their rebellion against him. Uh, We want to be, we long to be a church where people come to know Jesus and where people are kept trusting in Jesus. And this means loving one another well. It means in love, limiting our liberties. You see, Christian love, biblical love, is a a self-giving, sacrificial love. It is, in short, a Christ-like love. And that's where Paul turns next. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 15, we limit our liberty just like Jesus welcomed us. Uh, All for God's glory, just like Jesus welcomed us. What follows here in uh, Romans is, for the most part, motivation. And we're going to move it a bit more quickly now. So we've, we've kind of paused for a bit on uh, chapter 14. Uh, Paul's already given us some reasons why we live like this. It is, it is so serious because it's endangering people's eternities. And here it is so serious because it, it undermines, it runs counter to the gospel. Chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Once again, we have obligation language. Because we've been welcomed in Jesus, we have an obligation to welcome one another. It's not an optional extra in the Christian life. It's not just a nice thing to have at church. You might see an online review for a church. Maybe you checked St. John's out online before you joined us. They have a good welcome, it might say, on kind of Google reviews. But every true church should be a welcoming church. Every true believer is on the welcoming team For the first time, Paul uses the word strong in verse 1. He's avoided using it to this point, I think, for for fear of making one side look better than the other. But there are strong and there are weak. Not those with more faith in Jesus, but a clearer understanding of what living by faith looks like. And the strong should bear with the failings of the weak. It, It means they should carry, should support, should bear the burden. Again, Paul's not skirting the issue, the refusal of the weak to eat meat and so on. He calls a a failing. It's not a good or even a neutral thing, but it's not the weak he addresses. He calls on the strong, of whom he is one, to please, to build up the weak. It's very similar to what he was saying back in verse 19, pursue mutual upbuilding. That's why he's writing this letter, to strengthen them with the gospel. And how does the gospel strengthen them? Well, they remember, they keep remembering. They have been welcomed in Christ. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. They remember they're welcomed and they they follow Jesus' example. As we put others first, like Jesus did, so we too look weak. Quoting Psalm 69, Paul points to the cross and shows just what it meant for Jesus to welcome sinners like me and you. Just think about it. On what basis, if you're a Christian, on what basis did Christ accept you? What did Jesus have to do to welcome me and you? Just what did Jesus have to give up to bring us in? See, Jesus shows us the true extent of genuine welcome. Welcome means seeking and saving the lost. Welcoming means giving up any rights, any comforts I might want to cling on to. It may mean suffering reproach. Welcoming means building one another up. This seems to suggest over time the weak will move to a stronger position. But Paul doesn't put it like that, just in case we we let ourselves off the hook. Now, he keeps the focus on the obligation of the strong. It's not so much with great power comes great responsibility, but with God's great gospel comes great obligation. Uh, but just in case we were beginning to think it's all down to us, we get this, this wonderful little prayer in verses 5 and 6. It is a, a brilliant reminder that all of this ultimately rests on God, not us. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Harmony ultimately comes from God, not from ourselves. Uh, We don't look to ourselves, we don't even look to one another, but we look to God and his gospel for true unity, for harmony. And all of it is for God's glory. Welcoming one another. It's not so St. John's is a nice cozy place to be. It's not so that we just all get along and don't squabble. It is a demonstration of the gospel and all for God's glory. It shows what only God can do. He can take, and only he can take, two irreconcilable groups, Jews and Gentiles, and bring them together in Christ. And so with one voice, we glorify God. Again, can we see why it's so serious? We welcome one another. Uh, We need to welcome so we don't destroy the weak. Uh, We need to welcome because it's living in line with the gospel, with the cross. And also because failing to welcome jeopardizes Paul's mission to the nations. Uh, Finally, this morning, because of the cross, build up your neighbor for God's glory, remembering God's salvation plan. Uh, Remembering God's salvation plan and abounding in hope. In verses uh, 8 to 13, if you look down of chapter 15, we get a a load of Old Testament references, all basically making one big point. Uh, Paul quotes from the historical books, the law, the writings, the prophets. He covers all of his bases to remind us of God's big salvation plan. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Christ's welcoming of Jew and Gentile was for a purpose. He became a servant to the Jews in fulfillment of God's word, but also so the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews might be included as well. Uh, Maybe we can remember that the shorthand of God's salvation plan from chapters 9 to 11, do you remember, it was salvation to the Jews, but then they reject. So salvation overflows to the Gentiles. But in so doing, some Jews are provoked to jealousy and return to the Lord, and so all God's chosen people are saved. And it's what God planned all along. Uh, These Old Testament references, they give us examples of Jew and Gentile praising God with one voice. Uh, God's plan is for, for the Gentiles to be brought in with the Jews, and so not welcoming weaker brothers... Well, it threatens what God is doing in the world. It threatens uh, global missions. It's what's going on with all these references to hope. Uh, Paul is looking forward to the fulfillment of God's plan. And I just love the way Paul moves from what on the surface might seem such a mundane, such a pedestrian issue, what we eat and drink. And, And he moves from that to this wide-angle, technicolor, 3D view of the future, one filled with a glorious hope. How we treat one another over seemingly irrelevant issues matters massively. Jewish and Gentile Christians welcoming one another is vital for Paul. It shows the gospel works. It is the fulfilling of God's plan for the nations, and it brings glory to him. And so verse 13, it is such an encouragement, isn't it? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Whether weak or strong, we have joy and peace in the gospel and a brilliant hope. So we should be united in this. God is the God of hope. He is the one who will make us endure. He is the one who gives us this harmony, this joy, this peace. And so we must pray to him for it. What is a new Christian worth? It was worth Christ dying for them. Worth Christ welcoming them in. Surely they are worth us limiting our liberty and love for their sake. For the reputation of the gospel for the sake of reaching the nations and for the sake of God's eternal glory. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to be fundamentally other person-centered people with Jesus Christ as our example. Thank you for how he has welcomed us. Please help us to pursue mutual upbuilding and resolve never to put anything in the way of someone continuing to trust in Jesus if we can help it. And in all of this, help us to be dependent on you in prayer, remembering it is only in your strength and through your gospel that we can do this. 
would you delight to answer our prayers for our harmony with one another, for the furtherance of your gospel, and for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name and on the basis of his death. Amen.